Hey, listeners, our Patreon page is live. We would love for you to support us. You can go to our website, failforwardpod.com. You can donate today. I didn't know it at the time, but I was deeply depressed. Um, no, no external reasons why. I was a straight-A student. I was pre-med. I played on a varsity squash team. We had just won the national championship. Like, everything's going well, but I am a complete wreck. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. I am so excited to introduce Neil too. Neil is a longtime friend, even though we haven't seen each other in a long time. A longtime friend, yeah. Longtime friend. Longtime friend. Right. Exactly. And one of our other podcast guests, Reka Chaudhry, is the one that recommended that um, I reach out to you because she said that you had an incredible story to share. Mm-hmm. So welcome. Thank you. So Neil, for for our listeners, give us a little bit of background. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, from Cincinnati, grew up in Hyde Park, um, went to, let's see, St. Ursula Villa as a young child, and then Summit from the eight, from grades, uh, second grade through eighth grade, then St. X. St. X, yeah. and then? Then Harvard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, this is the part that I was going to tell you that I was going to add in here. Mm-hmm. So, growing up, Neil was the handsomest man that we all knew that went to Harvard, and all the girls thought he was so cute. Oh, right. You probably didn't know that. I did that's, not know that. I, sh- I wish I had known that. It's actually true. That would have helped my uh, security complex. <laughs> it is really true. Okay, so um, I think your story kind of starts in college, maybe, mm-hmm. or where do you want to start it? Well, how do you want to preface that, my story? Yeah, which story, right? Because yeah. you've got multiples. Well, do people know what the basis of this uh, topic is? No, you're going to tell them right now. Okay, well, so, you know, as I understand it, you 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 wanted me to come here to kind of address this drama of living with bipolar disorder. Yeah. And, um, and uh, that... Reka introduced me to you on this subject because I had written um, or done an interview with a friend on a blog about um, my experience living with bipolar disorder. This is a friend who who has a blog of friends who have dealt with serious medical conditions, and she asked me to do it about a year ago, and at the time I thought, boy, wouldn't that be nice if I could actually do that? Mm-hmm. And um, because I had always felt like health for me would consist of being able to be just very transparent about this condition as though it were any other kind of condition like cancer or diabetes or or lung cancer. and um, But it has such a stigma associated with it, and I never could do it. I always was afraid of the reactions. And, and uh, so anyway, I, I finally wrote that um, piece well I wrote it a year ago and I sat on it for a year really and um and because I was you know afraid and finally just series of events I just said okay you know it's time and so that's how we that's why we're here so I want to do a quick rewind because I understand where you're coming from with regards to sharing that so Mm -hmm. I've never shared that I am an alcoholic Mm -hmm. Uh, this is the first time I've ever shared that 
and podcast. Thank you. Um, Obviously recovering, so Mm -hmm. I haven't been drinking for two years. Mm -hmm. But there is a stigma associated with it. Even Mm -hmm. telling you that right now, my face is starting to get red Mm because it's still like I clearly must have some shame associated with it. Shame is key. Right? But I was born with it. Hmm. I, I, you know, I I could not control that. If right. you saw my family tree, hmm. you'd know. Right. There's no way of avoiding it. Wow. So, how did you get past that shame? Are you past it? So I I am past it, and um, what I would like to do is to tag that. Okay. Because I think that tag it for later in the discussion. Because I think that shame is this deep-seated cause, causal factor for lots of problems that we have, um, bipolar being one of them, and um, probably alcoholism being another drug, and other sorts of addictions. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I want to kind of build up to that, because that, to me that's been the real the real insight. So am I over it now? Yes. In a way, telling my story was key to getting over it in yeah. a deep way. Like I, now I, I'm completely over it. And um, I wonder why I didn't do it sooner. But so if I, if I go back to your first question, which was, I think, like, where did your story, where did this story start? Um, I would say that it started when I was 20, um, in a college dorm at Harvard, and Harvard, uh, the campus sits right on the, right along the Charles River, and um, my dorm could look out over the river, and I was, I was, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I was deeply depressed. Um, no, no external reasons why. I was a straight A student. I was pre med. I played on a varsity squash team. We had just won the national championship. Like everything's going well, but I am a complete wreck. And um, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, looking out over this bridge, looking out over this river where this bridge crosses it and, um, you know, wishing that I could jump from the bridge and um, sink and disappear. Mm-hmm. And because the, the, the darkness was so deep, the sense of um, hopelessness and, um, you know, being in a dead end and and seeing no way forward. And so I, I say that it starts there because I, I knew, I remember, I just, I, I remember thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? Yeah. Why, why, why do I have these thoughts? And I couldn't talk about them because what do you say? What do I say to my roommate who's actually on my squash team also? Like, oh, I'm, I'm, th- I'm thinking of committing suicide. Like, or to people in your in your class. I mean, so it creates this total cocoon of like isolation because you you feel like you can't tell anyone. You don't even understand what's going on. And um, so, was that the first time the you first had those time. thoughts? The, uh, I would say, you know, in retrospect, maybe you could see like signs, inklings, but that's the first time I ever remember wanting to actually end my life. Okay. And and that that was such a like what the hell? That was such a what the hell moment. And so like and how long did that last? I is couldn't really say it like was Like for bipolar like is it weeks for you? Is it hours? Uh no, it's 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 probably closer to the w- weeks. Okay. Yep. It's a it's a it's a drama. It's a 
day after day, sleepless nights, you know, hard time doing your work, you know, and um, I, I, I wrote in my blog this story, like probably the most compelling, like, story for me at undergrad was like when I was a senior, we were actually, um, again, in the national championship match, I was now the captain and I was totally depressed. Mm. I could not give a damn. I remember talking to my coach. My coach was like, what is wrong? Like, I, I could see it in his face. Like, where are you? Yeah. And I was just like in a shell of like, I couldn't sleep at night. I was just totally like distressed and dark. And um, it was, you know, it was, um, it was like, again, it's just, it's a total disconnect between the external situation and the internal reality. Right. And, and um, so I had been diagnosed by that point, uh, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. How did you get this? So you must have said something to somebody. Or uh, did your I knew, parents I, recognize? No, I, there was a doctor, a friend of mine, father's. My father did his medical training at Harvard, and so one of his old mentors actually lived there, and I would see him maybe once or twice a year just for dinner. Yeah. And he looked at me one day and was like, you know, I think you're bipolar or something like that. It was like he no bl- he blurted it out, and I was I was offended. I was like, "What are you talking about?" Right. And, and then he he told me to you know he had me see a doctor, a friend of his, a psych a psychiatrist, who likewise was like, "Boom, boom, you're bipolar," and I was like, "What are you talking about?" Because it, like it was so jarring, yeah. and um and um it was very dissociating. It was like that didn't help me anymore either, because. It didn't really clarify. They didn't solve anything, and you know, I, th- I think they put me on some medication. And but it, it's there's a whole topic here between what I would call the way that the medical community, the psychiatric community, looks at the disease in terms of like neurochemical pathways, yes. which to me are secondary attributes of the disease, and what I would call the primary causes, which which are like the relational and the psychological elements. And to, to hear somebody telling you you're, you have this disorder and they're speaking purely in the language of secondary attributes and neurochemical pathways, which is like the way they speak, you're just like, what are you, what are you talking about? This isn't, I'm a human being. So explain the psychological. I get the, <clears throat> the neuro part, but explain the psychological. What do you mean by that? So this is me p- piecing together literature and commentary from different fields of human flourishing and human um, development. Yeah, human f- uh, ailments, illnesses. Oh, okay. Like, in other words, I've never seen one paper that really explains bipolar in, in, a, in a way that makes total sense to me, to my condition. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it myself. And so I read and I've, I've, I've so the way I would describe it is in my view, um, personal view, I'm not a scientist. I haven't done longitudinal studies. I, I'm just piecing together w- the way I look at the literature and different doctors and both psychiatri- psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists. Um, the, the, the brain is this organism through which all personal, all human experience arises. Like 
we perceive reality through the lens of our brain. Yes. Which is kind of like, like, I mean, you see through your eyes. You you have human experience through the lens of your brain. Yeah. And and it makes sense that that brain could be traumatized and ill, right? I mean, the, the lungs get ill, the heart gets ill. Sure. So um, the question is, what causes that? Right. The doctors would say, well, let's look at the neurochemistry and let's figure out what's going. Well, that's just second. Sorry, that's just secondary. Yeah. Those are my taps. Um, <laughs> And um, I'm curious, what causes it in the first place? What what are, what are the? Um, um, I thought it was. I thought though it was just something that was you were born with, or it was that, genetic. There is no bipolar gene. They have never discovered a bipolar gene. Okay, a gene so, which, so what can trigger it then? So the triggers in my like the way I look at it, both personal experience and literature, is um, psychological trauma which affects the sense of well-being and attunement of a child in their development. And um, those things, once they happen relationally, psychologically, produce a neurochemical footprint. You see the footprint. Okay, but what produced it? And, And if you want, like, my postulation or my my guess is is you know human beings children have a deep need to be seen safe loved heard you know validated and if they don't get that or if they repeatedly don't get that yeah. it produces blunt trauma on their psyche of course it does right it's not hard. It's not hard to imagine. No. If you if you're if you're a child in England in like the factory age and and you're living right outside of a factory where smoke is coming out every day and you're breathing that in, is it going to be gonna... a shock that you have lung cancer? No. No. Of course. And they no. so they say literature says well we're not sure but we think that the environment um, does impact genetic expression, and they will further say when when genes are of, of influenced in their expression, that th- even the influence can be passed down to the next generation. Interesting. So, so was that new for you? Like totally when, new. When did you learn that? So within the. So it took me. So I was diagnosed in 1991 or two, and it wasn't until 2003. That I took it seriously, which, by the way, is very normal. Bipolar and, I guess, me- mentally ill uh, patients often resist the diagnosis because it's extremely personal. Right. But so anyway, so t- and they say that 10 to 12 years is normal. And then it wasn't for me until 2013 that the psychosocial stuff started where I found the right uh, psycho- psychologist who put me in touch with this whole community of thought around the psychosocial causes of bipolar disorder. And, and so it's been over the last, that's six years, that that's all stuff, is, it's, it's like... So in your treatment then, <clears throat> does your psychologist take you back to that traumatic event and help healing through there? How do you unpack it so that you can heal it? Well, the psychosocial stuff would, and that, by that again, I mean just psych, psychologists, you know, therapists, um, and then 
trying to unpack the social dimension of one's life, one's lived experience. So they're going to go all the way back to your childhood, mm-hmm. and they're going to look at the influences of what what was the basis for your self-perception uh, and um, what was healthy, what was not healthy. And, um, you know, the the... The big lingo that I'm sure you've heard, which is, but it's so p- powerful, is is this concept of a father wound. And I know Brian Tome on your show talked about that. And then I forget the guy from Google. Oh, Kirk Perry. He he didn't mention it, but Brian mentioned it about Kirk. Yeah. Um, we all have this kind of, you know, this deep need for affirmation, validation from our parents and um, from our father in particular, and and. Some of us get it in certain ways. Some of us don't, and some of us can actually be hurt um, in that in that area. And so the the, the psychologist would go back and look at all that. And, um, and for you, you weren't getting that. Um, what from my father? Yeah. So love my father. Um, wonderful man and incredible surgeon, incredible contributor to society, but. When he was young, he was a very driving, um, world kind of renowned surgeon, and he treated us like surgical residents. Um, we were always under the microscope. Always, our performance was always being measured. Was never enough. Um, no matter what the outcome was, he was just an extremely demanding person, which is kind of a beautiful thing. You definitely want your surgeon to be that way. But a child needs to be affirmed and validated mm-hmm. and in a deep core way and not constantly measured, analyzed, and judged. So there's a fascinating line that I came across in my reading that a child, a parent is, ca- an adult is capable of distinguishing between two simultaneous realities. In, in other words, you, me, we could all be parents who are loving with good intentions, but also potentially harmful because we're self-absorbed or we're pushing for their, our child to get into an Ivy League school or whatever. So we're constantly – so we could understand how parents could kind of do both. Yes. But I read, and it makes sense to my experience, that a child can't make that distinction. A child can't see if – a, if a parent is repeatedly harmful emotionally – um, a child doesn't see the good intention. A child experiences the harm. Right. And so you have this capacity, which was, you know, I'll speak from my brother and I, we, we, we were traumatized emotionally. Like yeah. we didn't feel validated. We didn't feel loved. We didn't, we didn't feel we were enough. And, you know, that's always the thing. You, people, want to be able to, people want to be able to know from your, the beloved your people, your parents and your spouse, you are loved, you matter, you are enough. You are enough. That's a critical message, and we didn't get that message. And um, it, it, so going back to this whole shame thing that you mentioned in the beginning, because I think this is where it comes in. Like, um, so shame is the message that what you have done is not enough. Yeah. That's the message. It's not enough. And it could be even more like, it's definitely not enough. So um, a message, a child who keeps getting that message, what you've done is not enough. Did you get that message? Oh, yes. Yeah. Like, even though I was like, what, people what would say, What about your what? mom? 
Um, like, did you get it from her? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, she 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 did, okay. and that's I would have probably been an absolute basket case if it, if it weren't. For but her. she didn't um, know how to, you know. She, 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 I mean, God love my mom. I do love her, but she enabled him. Yeah. She enabled his behavior. She didn't stop it. Like in my, and I'm in my house, I did all the same stuff that my dad did as a, as a young dad, but yeah. my wife was like, not in my house. Yeah. And she helped me to see that that was just not healthy behavior. Right. And, and, you know, I think my father was just really super busy with his career and there was not the space to do a kind of major, uh, social and familial over, overhaul like like I did. Can we talk about one thing? You and I talked about this on the phone, but this concept of um, conditional love, and I've seen that um, mm. with certain friends of mine's parents where sometimes it's not unconditional. It's like if you do this, then you get this. And I think that I'm just so curious. That was not what I grew up with, but I'm just so curious how that impacts you as a child and you as an adult. You grew up with unconditional love or with conditional? Yeah. I grew up with unconditional love. Yeah. So I. Like it didn't uh, matter what I did. I knew that they still loved me at the end of the day. So I'm going to just say again, I'm, I'm speaking through the lens of a child. So I may be wrong. My perceptions may produce a reality. And, you know, I, I was a child who might not have been able to see the complexity in my parents' approach, you know. But I, w I grew up in a very performance-driven culture, and um, I perceived that um, both through my dad's reaction with me and the way that he spoke to me about my siblings, that performance was the measure. Yeah. Academic, athletic how you present yourself to the world. So it, I was loved to the degree that I, per, that I met those performance standards. And, you know, it would be interesting to be able to go back and watch, like if I could be a, if I could put a video in, in the house and yeah. see it now from a healthy perspective, I probably would be more forgiving. Well, I am forgiving of my parents, but I'd probably be even more understanding um, oh, that's because, a good way of looking at because it. Because a child, again, a child can only see in a certain way. I don't, a child can't hold to. Right. A child is going to perceive that it's so important for a child to be known, seen, heard, validated, loved. Tell me what you've done differently or learned from that you've done with your kids. So. Uh, just today, I yeah. uh, literally today, my son's last uh, day of high school, first of uh, freshman year of high school, and he got his first B, and uh, I was super proud of him, <laughs> <laughs> and I made sure he knew that I thought it was awesome how he did this year, how he gave himself in all these ways. He he doesn't like honors bio. He doesn't find it interesting. He doesn't want to go to medical school, and he got a B. And it's super hard class. And yeah. I'm like, I said to him, I think you did great. And um, and I think it's great that you can get a B and be okay with it. Yeah. And frankly, in life, all you really need to do is excel at what you really love and what's part of your main pathway. And so I, I literally stood him up and I hugged him. I told him this while I was hugging him. I love and, that. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's a totally- That's uh, so great. <laughs> 
that was meant to happen today so that you could share that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Neil, what advice do you have? I want to talk specifically about young boys in adolescence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for them or for some parents? It's usually parents listening to this um, around signs or how can you, how you can help them. Well, bipolar doesn't tend to manifest until one's about 18 to 20. Okay. So just so you know. Okay. Which, I did know that. When I said young boy, I was thinking more like the teen. Yeah. And um, like I would say my third child uh, shows signs of it in in a temperament that is very prone to crater. Like what I mean by that is certain things can hit her like – setbacks and just really you you could almost see her psyche being dented in, inwards oh. she takes it very hard and and then and she's a very um very passionate child um very very committed very diligent perfect handwriting straight a student she she's pushing the envelope and and so she expresses the high high striving um attributes and also this unusual just yeah. just kind of vulnerability and that to me that says be careful you know high striving high impact of setbacks you know personalization of setbacks i'm terrible mm-hmm. i'm terrible i'm awful i can't do this these reactions which are like she's personalizing the setback that that would be something that i'd i'd watch out for and so we, you know, I don't know. I mean, we've we've had. I don't know that we've started her, but we had my oldest son who ex- exhibited the same things. We got him to see a therapist, um, just a talk therapist, not a psychiatrist. He wasn't on medica- medication, but um, to great effect. And I love that you're like on it because yeah. you know that it's yeah. in the family, yeah. um, and that that I think was one of the reasons why. I got sober pretty easily. Mm. I hate saying that. Like, I didn't ruin my marriage, get a DUI, or anything bad happened. But when I started noticing the obsession of the mind over alcohol, mm. my parents had given me the tools to say, this is this is in our family. Mm. You need to be aware of it. And we talked about it. We were educated around it. Like, it was a normal thing, right. if that makes sense. Right. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I think... That's another thing to oh, do. We talk about it. Like we, even before I was so-called public with this, I was public internally with the family, and we because, and we we destigmatize it. And um, I would say, you know, interestingly enough, um, as I thought about, like, so the condition is called uh, bipolar disorder, and it used to be called manic depression. Right. Um, in the 1600s, it was called. Me- Manico-melancholicus. I mean, isn't that cool? (laughs) What are you? I'm (laughs) manico-melancholic. I love that. Um, So, but the the concept of bipolar disorder, you know, interestingly, what I would say, we might not have time to go into this, but I think that the condition is not so much a disorder, but a reaching for order. Oh, my God. I love that. Because there's... Explain. So... So, for example, first of all, um, if the liver of an alcoholic, to take that example, yeah. um, 
is taking in lots of you know, alcohol more than normal. The liver is working hard, producing toxins, getting them out into the bloodstream, and it's doing its job. So in a, in a bipolar brain, um, in my view, I can't document That's this fine. through a study, but in my view, the brain is, is dopamine-starved. Okay, that's okay. my theory, yeah. and it's not totally un- – it's, it's pretty established, but it's not like – and is dopamine star because of, in my view, certain s- emotional, psychological, relational trauma, and so it's trying to rectify that. Mania is characterized by an over-neurotransmission of dopamine. It's an overdose of dopamine, and then that's like – that's kind of it's like cocaine intoxication. I mean, that's basically is it, what it is. is. It it's like, basically the same thing. It's basically neurochemically, it's kind of the same thing. So the the child is like reaching for the the dopamine balance that is being deprived of, mm-hmm. and then I think that sets up a kind of a short circuit because then what happens is they don't sleep when they're right. manic, they don't eat. They get into very risky behavior, either sexually or purchasing or new businesses, and then they crash. And then, then the crash is the depression. And, um, but what's, what's really going on, in my view, like neurobiologically, is the brain is reaching for order. It's reaching for an order, like through experience, it's reaching for an order through experiences that really it's designed to have through interpersonal relationships of safety, being known, being acknowledged, being valued, being loved, because that's where, that's where the human being was made to be. That's, that's the healthy air that is made to, it's intended to breathe. I love reaching for order. Mm-hmm. That's really awesome. I feel like you maybe should trademark that. <laughs> Just kidding. I but should. not really. I like that. Okay, so we're... I'll tell you one thing really funny. Yeah. So the the literature is very funny the way they change names. Okay. Um, they go from mecha- manico melancholicus to right. manic depression to bipolar disorder, and now the new thing is BPD. Oh, they just abbreviated it. BPD. For us. I read that. And isn't there a BPT one and two? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. BP one and two. You know, I have my master's in counseling, so nice. I loved the DSM because I Love would read it. about all of these disorders. Yeah. Right. Um, but the, but they're trying to make it less stigmatized. Right. But the thing is, the name is not the source of the stigma. It's yeah. the psychological experience. So fix that, and then it doesn't matter what the name is. Well, and you know what helps destigmatize <clears throat> it? People like you that talk mm. talk mm. about it, because people can connect and say, "Oh my God, I know him." He's just like me, mm. you know? Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I really hope um, happens through my communicating it is creating is creating a place for a bipolar patient to say, oh, I'm maybe, I'm maybe okay. Maybe I'm valued. Create circles where they can be heard. Is that your next gig? Uh, so for those listeners, say. okay, also, you should talk about the Squash Academy really quickly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so very briefly, ten years ago, I started this. Um, this I believe that sport is a great arena for kids to develop healthy human personalities. And I happened to play squash. I, that's my college sport, and, and I he played was it all. Kind of good at it. And uh, so I gr- played it growing up. And there was a very uh, 
poorly developed squash community in Cincinnati. And so 10 years ago, I determined to create a place that could be a publicly accessible squash program and really be where the sport could be a vehicle for personal, healthy personal development. And uh, we're 10 years in, um, doing great. We're about ready to have our third national tournament um, in uh, September. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. That's huge. Yeah, so that's been really fun to watch. Well, I'm really grateful that you came today. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. 